The GW Regulatory Studies Center is part of the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration at the George Washington University. Our mission is to improve regulatory policy through research, education, and outreach. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Bryce Chanel. Except I won't be today, as Jerry Ellick is in control of the microphone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast from the Regulatory Studies Center at George Washington University. My name is Jerry Ellig, and I'm a research professor at the Regulatory Studies Center. Our topic today is the contribution of the 2020 Nobel laureates in economic science, Paul Milgram and Robert Wilson. They received the Nobel Prize for their contributions to auction theory. The Federal Communications Commission and telecommunications regulators worldwide have made use of their work to design auctions for radio spectrum. Today's guest has a unique perspective on their contributions. Our guest is Dr. Evan Correll a senior economic advisor in the Office of Economics and Analytics at the Federal Communications Commission. Evan has been at the FCC since 1983, and he has been the principal architect of the FCC's most important spectrum auctions. When Congress granted the FCC authority to auction spectrum in 1993, he helped design the FCC's first simultaneous multiple round auction. More recently, Dr. Correll conceived the two-sided incentive auction that induced television broadcasters to relinquish a lot of the spectrum they had been using. That auction concluded in 2017 and freed up 84 megahertz of television spectrum to be used for mobile broadband services. Prior to the FCC, Dr. Correll served as an assistant professor of economics at Yale University, an economic policy fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a senior economist at the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Evan, it's great to have you with us on the air today. Well, Jerry, it's great to be here. Yeah, I guess thanks to COVID, we have to say it's great not to be with you. But in any case, you know what I mean. Well, let's get right into this. And, and I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about the, the prehistory of spectrum policy for listeners who may not be as familiar with this whole area. Uh, now, before 1993, how did the FCC determine how different parts of the spectrum would be used and which specific users would have the right to it? Well, to use a term that um, we economists are, are familiar with, it was a command and control um, method of spectrum management. And the way it worked was that engineers, not markets, um, would determine spectrum uses and, and users. Um, the engineers would determine you know, who should use it, how it should be used, in part um, based on comments from from stakeholders, which was largely um, industry. Um, in the early days, there weren't that many um, public interest groups. I could elaborate on it briefly, but um, you know, the, the short of it is, or the long of it is, um, that the FCC specified you know, specific uses like TV broadcasting or satellite for a certain band, and that's all you could do with it. They limited who could use it. So you know, it could be commercial, could be public safety um, entities, government, um, and the rights. This is of most interest, you know, to economists. The rights were specified mostly in terms of inputs. For example, in the, the first um, cellular um, licenses, specified a particular technology called amps, and they also um, prior to cellular, they it, it was a what the British called like an apparatus license. Um, they, they were largely high-powered broadcasts from tall towers 
and the FCC would specify a specific tower location, tower height, power at the transmitter, and and um, so on. And another um, fact ab about um, the early days of um, spectrum management was the spectrum was not licensed exhaustively. There was there was a lot of spectrum that wasn't available anyone, uh, so-called white space. Unfortunately, much of that, but not all of it, is, is in the past. Now let me switch to talk about market-based spectrum policy. And market-based spectrum policy, I would, I would really date the significant beginning of that to not 1993, but 1984 with the introduction of cellular service. And the nature of cellular service required more flexible licenses covering large spectrum blocks and geographic areas. And within those geographic areas, the cellular operators were free to deploy multiple low power transmitters that could be placed where necessary according to demand. It really forced the FCC to um, change it to, to change its model because the FCC you know, wasn't going to specify where each um, cellular tower would be. It just gave cellular operators this 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 broad area and established uh, interference boundaries. However, as I mentioned before, the technology first um, cellular um, licensees could use was specified. That changed in in 1994 with the introduction of PCS, personal communication services, which had very few restrictions on either the service, you know, what you could do with it or the technology, except for uh, restrictions meant to control interference. And I will just add here that John Williams, my co colleague who's an, who's an engineer at the FCC, and I um, spent a lot of effort, you know, arguing for uh, flexibility um, for PCS, and the original plan was to narrowly define what, how PCS licenses, um, what they could be used for, and uh, it, unfortunately, the FCC uh, evolved and went to um, flexible licenses. Let me, let me drill into that a little bit further, because but back in 1959, another Nobel laureate, Ronald Coase, uh, wrote his famous paper suggesting that spectrum ought to be alloc allocated through the price mechanism rather through than through administrative processes. When he presented this idea to the FCC, one commissioner's reaction was, is this all just a big joke? So how did the FCC's attitude evolve from skepticism to support of auctions? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because, you know, I've, I've thought about it, as has Tom Hazlett, right? Yeah. <laughs> So if you want a, um, another view, you know, speak to Tom. But um, actually, I think much of what Tom said was right. What, what I would say is, is, is that the, the most significant underlying factor in this evolution of support for um, spectrum auctions was the development of cellular technology because that technology greatly increased the demand and the value of, of spectrum licenses. And, and so let me you know, flesh that out a bit. And there, there, there are sort of two points, two, thing, two, two factors that I think led to this, um, as you called it, evolution. First of all, because the cellular licenses were so valuable, there was a lot of demand for them. And it put enormous pressure 
on the existing methods of um, spectrum license assignment. Until 1982, licenses were selected by comparative hearings, which was an administrative process. And the hearings and court challenges could take years and were costly for both participants and the government. And often it was, it was difficult to even distinguish among applicants and, and winners were frequently chosen based on trivial differences. So for example, you know, with cellular applications, it, it has been said applicant in Los Angeles won over another one because he had this applicant proposed to serve some minuscule additional area. It really had no economic significance, but the, the license the applications were essentially identical. So they had to find some tiebreakers and they you know, based it on stuff that really had no um, significance. So, you know, Congress, so, and, and so the demand, you know, for these licenses was sort of overwhelming the process and people dealing with it realized that essentially the, the applications were indistinguishable and, 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 and that perhaps the, the choices were so, somewhat arbitrary. So, so Congress decided to give FCC authority to assign licenses by lottery. The, the, thing, the thought being that first you had to be qualified. So it wasn't like, you know, um, you know Jerry's uh, trash collection service could just, just, just say, I want a license. You had to have some quali some, something that counted as qualifications, which you demonstrated, you know, through a plan of what you were going to do. And I don't know what else. But the notion was among qualified applicants, you might as well consider them you know, equal and then just um, use um, lotteries. Unfortunately, that didn't work out so well either. Um, we had already awarded the most valuable cellular licenses through comparative hearings or in many cases just through settlements that, um, you know, that the various parties, th there were eligibility restrictions and um, and, and you, one of the licenses, there were two licenses, and one of the, one of the licenses you had to, could only go to a, um, a local a local carrier who had a presence in that license area, and instead of going through a comparative hearing, they would just settle. So but anyway, a phone company. Yeah, exactly. But but because because the fact that the you know that there were different local phone companies, you could have more than one company. Because the the phone company service area and the cellular license service area weren't the same, you could have multiple phone companies that that had a footprint, you know, within the cellular license area, and then it would go to a comparative hearing. Nobody wanted to go through that, so most cases they just settled in some way. Anyways, you know, Congress um, in 1982 granted FCC lottery authority. So what happened? Well, it's sort of what an economist would think would happen. You know, if it's rent seeking, you know, if there's money to be, if there's something given away for free that's worth a lot, a lot of people are going to line up to get it. And, and you want to line up in the cheapest possible way. So what happened was application mills, as they were called, developed, you know, creating these very inexpensive standard applications. And by 1988, according to, I think, Tom Hazlett, who, who did a nice paper on this, they were down to about $650 per cellular market. 
you know, by that point, there wasn't a big barrier. Even even Jerry's trash removal service, you know, could apply. And um, you just bought a standard application and then you look qualified. And as a result, uh, the FCC received about 400,000 lottery applications for what were the least valuable cellular licenses. Because as I said, the most valuable, they went from largest market size to, 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 to smaller. And so, so these, these were, many of them were these rural um, service areas. So it wasn't even the most valuable licenses and there were still 400 applications. And then FCC lore has it that there were so many applications that the paper, which was filed on these shelves in Gettysburg, broke the shelves. The shelves just collapsed on, under the, the weight of all the applications. But because the FCC is, 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 is creative, innovative, resourceful, they solved the problem by going to microfiche applications. Yeah, so this was before the internet and PDFs, yeah. Well, I just wanted to give some, some flavor of, 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 you know, the resourcefulness of, of the agency because they, they, you know, they were bound by the, the, you know, legislation. So anyway, to summarize this, now we're, we're, we're moving towards auctions, but we needed legislation. But let, let me, you know, one, one perhaps cynical way of describing this is, I said, to, to paraphrase Churchill, auctions are the worst form of licensing, except for all those other forms that have been tried. In other words, when everything else fails, do the right thing. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the other methods really did not work well. The other part of the story, again, goes back to my, my point that the value of um, spectrum was, was really high with the advent of cellular. So because there was so much value, spectrum auctions were then seen as a potential source of a significant amount of uh, new revenue. And there was another, and then there was an interesting reason why Congress cared about revenue. Because of, as you may have noticed that they don't seem to really care that much now, but there was a different circumstance. In, 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 and these institutional factors matter. In 1990, Congress passed this um, PAYGO, Pay As You Go Act, which required new expenditures to be financed by new revenue. So you had to, any, any spending proposal you had, you know, proposal for new spending, you had to identify a source of revenue. Well, you know, the Clinton administration um, was new and they actually wanted to be able to spend money on things, but they were, they, they were um, constrained by this um, PAYGO Pay Act. So spectrum auctions had been proposed, you know, legislation had been proposed in years before. Now with a, with a new administration, and, and these constraints, um, um, there, there was a, a real appetite for auctions. So the fact that the FCC, or at least the chairman of the FCC in 1986, was strongly advocating um, spectrum auctions and that we were able to get hearings on it and made all these arguments of why it would be more economically efficient and so on, you know, it, it, it didn't win the day. It was only, it was seen as a source of uh, revenue, which would allow for additional spending that legislation got over the finish line. Okay, so Congress granted the FCC authority to conduct auctions. And I think a lot of listeners, when they think of auctions, just think of selling something on eBay or having an auction, or having an auctioneer come over to grandma's house to sell the stuff in her attic. 
the FCC had to design something and you had to design something called a multiple round simultaneous auction. So now how, how is this different from what most people think of when they think of auction? Okay, so first, let, let me put a finer point on the word had to, because I think it's an important distinction. We didn't have to do that. We, 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 we could have run an auction where we took bids, where people mailed in bids or came in person and dropped their bids into a, a, a lockbox and we had bids on each individual license and we opened up the, the, the bids and awarded each license in sequence based on um, sealed bids. The, this, is, this, this is the way that uh, the Interior Department has, and I believe still um, auctions off their offshore oil and gas tracks. So, you know, again, we, 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 we could have just done something different, but we chose not to. And, and that's what's, what's the interesting story. I mean, okay, it's, a yeah, story, that? it's a story of, you know, innovation than when there were, you know, um, traditional alternatives available. And ju just a, a sort of digression in terms of resistance to innovation. My boss at the time, when I was advocating for the simultaneous multiple round auction, said, I don't want to be a beta test site. So there was a lot of concern, you know, the, and, and desire on some people not to take risks and to just do something tried and true. But, I, but I, I'll come back to that if there's any time. Okay, so first of all, what is a simultaneous multiple round auction? And what it is, is all licenses are put up for auction at the same time. That's a simultaneous multiple round because it's an ascending auction. Prices go up on, on, on licenses as long as there are, are new bids. And under the design that we adopted, the auction doesn't close until there's no bidding on any license. Milgram and Wilson came up with this idea. In, in our rulemaking where we um, proposed an auction design, um, which I wrote the auction section, um, you know, I proposed something much simpler because I mentioned that, that there was a economic reasons to do things simultaneously. Basically, I didn't know how to do it. And then Milgram and Wilson came in with this proposal. And there was also a competing proposal for a simultaneous um, ascending auction, but it didn't have the, the elegant simultaneous closing rule that Milgram and Wilson proposed. So how does this compare to the auction that you're referring to? Well, you know, in a, in a traditional auction, like when, um, when the auctioneer comes to uh, grandma's house, and for a state, an estate sale, you know, items or groups of items are put up for bid one after another. But the problem is when one item is sold early in the auction, bidders have to guess on what the price will be on items sold later than the auction if the, if the items are either substitutes or complements. In other words, if, you know, I'm, I'm, I might want to buy, you know, the green bowl or the blue bowl, but they're, but they're auctioned in sequence, and um, you know, maybe I prefer the blue bulb, but um, you know, maybe other people do too. And the green bowl is uh, auctioned first, so I I, I make a, a bid and I win the, the green bowl, and then the blue bowl sells for you know the same amount or less, and I'm kicking myself. But how did I know? But you know, under our simultaneous auctions where everything is open until the end, you can keep switching back and forth. And you know, be able to um, make your bids based on actual knowledge of um, 
of prices of alternative items. I can elaborate on the, the complementary aspect too, but I'll hold off for that for later. Similarly, on eBay, things are sold simultaneously. There's, there's lots of things on sale at the same time, but there's no effort to ensure that things that are either substitutes or complements, you know, they're interrelated, are sold at, this, at the same time. They don't hold it up. They just put the stuff on. And they don't ensure that bidding ends on the same time for related items. So, you know, you have, you have the same problem. I can, so let me, let me stop there on that question. Okay, well, what, now what kind of practical problems were there that had to be solved in order to make this kind of auction work? And, and how was Milgram and Wilson's work helpful? Okay, so, so the, the practical problems really had to do with the, the fact that the FCC in licensing spectrum in contrast to you know small European countries, divided up the country in, into multiple geographic areas as opposed to having a, a single nationwide license. So you had this issue of complementarities, both in geography of, of, of wanting to have licenses that are in adjacent areas, you know, you don't want sort of holes between them. If people for cellular like a roaming, you don't want to have service and then it drops out and then you've got another one. So there's, there's geographic complementarity. And of course, and, and there's also complementarity and substitutability in, in, in frequency. There, there's uh, technical benefits to having adjacent frequencies. And the Euro, a lot of the European auctions, it was like nationwide licenses, one to a customer. There was no issue of um, you know whether you could get adjacent um, in geography or frequency because you can only bid on one license and it would be a nationwide license for a certain frequency and you couldn't combine it with another license. So so to give you an example, in the upcoming um, C-band auction, this is satellite spectrum that's been repurposed for um, mid-band um, 5G use. There'll be 14. 20 megahertz blocks in each of 406 available partial economic areas. So that's a total of 5,684 licenses. So there's a real issue of being able to put these licenses together in an economically uh, sensible way, you know, both contig contiguous in both geography and uh, spectrum. I mean, one of the, 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 the issues that, that economists spend a lot of time on is is um, the the problem of of, of complementarities, which makes it um, complex. And 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 this this let, let me let me spend a, a minute on this. So bidders would like to be able to get, as I said, a typical typically a package of licenses. You know, certain contiguous geographic areas and 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 um, uh, contiguous um, frequencies, and they face the risk that they're bidding. If, if you don't have something like this simultaneous multiple round auction or, or package bidding, which is, we decided was far too complicated, they, they face the risk that, that, that they're, you know, they're, they're winners, they may be winners, you know, on the package, and then, and then pieces of that package are, they're outbid, that they, they can't, that it's just too much, and then they're, and they can't raise their bid, but now they're stuck with the remaining licenses in the package, and by the nature of these complementarities, the the value of the package is greater than the, the value of the licenses individually. So they can end up paying more for those partial licenses they win 
than, than it's worth to them because it was only worth what they bid if they got all the licenses right. that they wanted. This doesn't eliminate, but re, but reduces um, the the risk of, of 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 that happening. And so that that was the, a, a fundamental problem that this was addressing, as well as making a very that's a complementarity problem uh, issue, or the sometimes it's referred to as the exposure problem. And and it also addressed the the the, the simpler um, problem of substitutes. You know, I, I could be fine with this frequency or that frequency, but I don't know, you know, in fact, there are, they might be equivalent to me, but I don't know what to bid if, if, it's, if they're put up um, sequentially. Uh, I remember running into a problem like this at an estate sale one time where they were selling a house and auctioning off the contents one by one. And yeah. one of the contents was a photo of a woman standing in front of the house in like 1900 which is really a cool thing to have if you know you're going to end up buying the house. Um, exactly. But if you're not going to be buying the house, it's kind of, you know, not worth very much. And of course they auctioned the picture first. Uh, so. Yeah. So, I mean, that, 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 that's a great example. You know, th this, this addresses, you know, those, those kind of problems. Yeah. Because that, that, as you said, they auction that first. If, uh, so the order matters. I exactly. And they probably auctioned it first intentionally because if they auctioned it after they sold the house, they'd only have one bidder on it. Uh, right. But, you know, they were trying to maximize the, the income. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, let, let's fast forward a few years to, well, to a couple of years ago uh, where the, the FCC conduct, conducted uh, another unique type of auction uh, where television broadcasters could participate and make bids uh, for how much they would have to be paid to give up some of the spectrum they would be using. So it was this two-sided auction. I mean, how, how did the FCC come to do that? And what were the, again, the problems that had to be solved in order to make that work? This is, this is something which, you know, I, I, I played a significant role in. You know, in 2002, John Williams and I wrote a paper arguing for using a, a two-sided auction to repurpose spectrum because it was becoming clear that the, the, that the problem was not how to um, assign, you know, virgin spectrum because the spectrum was largely filled up, but it was filled up with low value uses. And, and the, the, the economic problem was how, how, how do you um, shift spectrum from low value uses to higher value uses? And we didn't really have a good way of doing that. And also there was this issue that, you know, you, you wanted to do some of this simultaneously so people could aggregate uh, spectrum and also make you know, decisions about substitution. So, you know, John and I proposed a simplified version of a two-sided auction, which by the way, was, was used after the broadcast incentive auction, but in, in 39, um, gigahertz auction just last year. Um, but in any case, I have been advocating using a, a two-sided auction for years. The major resistance I had was the lawyers kept saying, we don't have authority. It's, it's against the law to do this. The reason why it was against the law was the auction authority said, all auction revenues must be deposited in the treasury. Well, if it's uh -huh. deposited in the treasury, it can't be deposited in, in a 
pockets of the people that relinquished their license in, in, a, in a reverse auction. So, you know, no matter what subterfuge I came up with, you know, in, in terms of how you could characterize this, it just didn't pass muster. And so it, it, legislation was necessary. So I was thinking, you know, probably the, the most important misallocation was between um, broadcasting spectrum, television broadcasting spectrum, and, and, and mobile use. Because what was going on with television broadcasting was, you know, fewer and fewer people were getting uh, their, their television service over the air. You know, it was down to like, I don't know, 15%, you know, some, some maybe as low as 10% at times. And yet the, the, the demand for cell, cellular phones and um, broadband, mobile broadband was, was just burgeoning. And so there was an, you know, an obvious mismatch. You didn't need a really strong regulatory impact analysis to figure this out, that, 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 that there was a massive misallocation. So I, I was you know, working on this problem independently when lo and behold, and I think it was in 2009, that Congress wanted the F FCC to um, write a broadband report. And um, they, they convened a broadband task force and the head of the task force, Blair Levin, thought that a major source of broadband could be spectrum and, and a major source of spectrum could be misallocated TV spectrum. I sort of was in a position where, you know, I, I actually had a solution to a problem. Um, Blair wanted to just administratively clear the spectrum. In other words, he wanted the TV licensees to just double up because we had the technology for doing this with multicasting, you know, the, the way that you can get you know, multiple channels on the, on, the, on the same frequency. I mean, like PBS has uses uses this a lot or, or I guess it's or simulcasting maybe but I thought you know the one size fit all just didn't make any sense I mean because not everybody wanted to operate with half the spectrum and how do you know who values the spectrum the most and you know which stations should stay on the air and which which shouldn't you know made the case to both Blair and my boss Paul Dessau who I actually had been working with him on the whole problem. And, you know, he made the, the case to chairman Julius Janikowski and the chairman, you know, was willing to go with the idea and propose in, in the broadband task force report, I mean, that the FCC would propose that we get authority to run a two-sided uh, incentive auction. You know, much to my, I don't know about surprise, but certainly um, it, was, it was very grat gratifying that we actually got legislation and I was involved with working, you know, I'm, it really was a team effort. Um, there, you know, there were some outstanding people, you know, working on the, on, on the legislation, but it was true bipartisan legislation, which was really, which was, which is really a rare thing that, that both the Democrats and the Republicans wanted to get additional spectrum for uh, mobile use. But in, um, 2012, um, the Spectrum Act was passed as part of a broader um, authority to do that. So now, how did the work of our Nobel laureates help when you, you know, sat down to, to try to figure out how to design that auction? I had a good sense to, to, 
to know, and this is one, one of the points I'd like to make in this whole thing, is, is that collaboration with, with academics as well as industry is, is critical to uh, innovative policy. You know, I made the case for hiring um, experts. In, in particular, I, w I wanted to hire, you know, Paul Milgram, but I wanted a, a, a team for what I call the, you know, design build. And I, didn't, I didn't want the situation, you know, where you got one person design it and somebody else builds it and the, mm. and, and the builder says, I don't understand these plans. And, and, and the designer says to the builder, you know, you did it wrong. I wanted, you know, an integrated team, and and uh, you know, Paul Milgram assembled the integrated team of not only economists, but um, computer scientists and software designers and so on to figure out how to do this. I had originally proposed for for the the reverse auction, something very simple, which which was um, a single sealed bid, second price auction, a Vickery auction. But it turns out that there are difficulties to actually properly cal calculate that. And there's a problem that there's more information conveyed through a descending clock auction than there is in a single bid auction. I and mean, people want to know what other people are bidding and uh, bidders are really not very comfortable with, with just putting a single bid in, specifying their value for all these different options. And there were multiple options. I mean, I want, you know, you could go off the air. It was the only spectrum that was, was valuable for mobile was UHF, the higher ultra high frequency spectrum. So, you know, so one option is you go off the air completely. Another option is you could move to um, upper VHF, the upper part of the VHF spectrum or the lower part. So if you have to specify all those things at once, it, it's, it's hard to know how to do that, just um, putting in a single bid without seeing what other people are doing. So they figured out an incredibly clever um, method of, of having a, a descending clock auction that could allow you to express not only how much you needed to be paid to vacate the spectrum, but but allow you to express your preferences for vacating it or or moving to one of the the lower channels. And, and let me just say that it was an extraordinarily complicated technical problem that required not only you know sort of innovative economics. This is what's called a deferred acceptance auction. What you do is at at the high prices you reject bids or reject bid uh, bid means that you um, say you can we're, we're not going to pay you to go off the air um, we're going to we're going to find you another channel the, and, and you want to do that for the ones that want a real lot of money it's better to find them another channel and pay them and and the deferred acceptance is when you get down to the to the bottom the people who are willing to go for very little or or that's the deferred acceptance those are the ones that that you buy off because you don't have to pay them that much. So the application, you know, to this was 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 clever, but it wasn't just a traditional auction of this kind because of the the fact what you were doing is taking a certain number of television channels and reducing it 
to try to find out sort of what the minimum number of channels you needed to uh, uh, be able to clear a certain amount of spectrum. And what was necessary when, when they were doing this, I also need to explain the structure of the auction, but, but one thing that had to be done for each bid, the FCC had to, before it could, before it could so-called process a bid, the FCC had to determine whether there was an available channel to move that bidder because you couldn't you couldn't reject their bid and say I'm going to give you a channel if there was no channel to give them but yeah. but to do that it means you have to do a full blown integer programming problem of figuring you know of rearranging all the channels to 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 see if given the number of channels available there, there's a place to you know fit fit that um, bidder because you have to meet these constraints. I mean, a bidder is in a, you know, a specific location and not any channel will do. You have to pr protect them against um, interference from other TV stations that are, uh, you know, on adjacent, in adjacent areas on the same frequency and on frequencies above and below. We had an incredibly clever um, computer scientist who, who came up with his, you know, algorithms for doing this like in seconds. Um, so it was it was a combination of of coming up with you know a economic design and and working with computer scientists to do something that allowed us to have a descending uh, clock auction. But let me explain. They also came up with how to integrate the 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 supply side and the demand side. What they ended up doing, proposing, and what we did was having a, a series of, of stages. And what we did was we started out with the, the maximum amount of um, spectrum we could clear given initial responses, you know, there were actually bids by television stations in terms of, you know, wh whether they would be participating in the auction. So you knew, you know, that there's some bidder, some, some TV stations, there was no price at which they would which they would clear the spectrum. They 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 had to be given a channel, so you could figure out what what you know. Given the number of people that had to be uh, assigned a, a license, um, you could figure out. And if everybody else could be bought out, you know what was the maximum amount of spectrum you could get, and if you optimally repacked it. So you had an a, you know a starting point, and you started we you started. I I think it was like with, I can't even remember a hundred. Um, 20 megahertz of of um, spectrum, and you first conducted the re reverse auction and figured out what was it going to cost to um, clear, you know, that amount of spectrum. Then you did a a forward auction where you sell that amount of spectrum, but it's conditional. You're not actually, you know, it's selling it contingent on, you know, having this matching of supply and demand in the sense that the auction would not uh, end unless the amount that bidders were willing to pay for the spectrum cleared exceeded the amount that 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 you had to pay the TV stations to clear the spectrum. And and so if it if it if at a high amount of spectrum cleared where the you know you're 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 paying the people that need a lot of money, if if that's too much, then you go to a, a lower clearing target and you kept reducing the clearing target uh, until you got to the point where the amount 
that buyers of spectrum were willing to pay for the amount of spectrum cleared exceeded the amount of uh, the amount that had to be paid to um, sellers of spectrum. It's a little more complicated. It had to it had to cover um, uh, administrative costs and but but that's the essential thing. That that was a, actually quite a clever design, um, you know, to to do it sequentially like that. And you know th that's what the, the you know they came up with. So and and they said they figured out you know how to make this thing um, work. And as I said, it, it really was a team effort. Wilson was not involved in the in the broadcast incentive auction, but many other prominent economists like Ilya Segal and Larry Osabel, you know, were involved in it. And, and, and there, there were, you know, some brilliant computer scientists, you know, all in all with FCC and outside people, there were, you know, prob probably well over 100 people in, involved in this. Well, as economists, we talk a lot about efficiency and we're trying to find the efficient solution. And, you know, we're trying to find where the supply and demand curve intersect. Uh, right. which, which is great for us. But I mean, can you explain what, what are the practical benefits to American consumers that came out of this? The practical benefits um, is that it made a lot of spectrum available to provide mobile services you know, to the American public, which values it very highly. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll say that it, you know, the, the, the two-sided auction solved not only, you know, an economic problem, but, but it's, you know, solves a political problem, which is, you know, how are you going to, you couldn't just mandate that, that, that the broadcasters just cleared the spectrum and without paying them. I mean, that just, you, you'd have, you'd have nothing. But what the auction did, and not only figured out how much spectrum to clear, as opposed to doing that administratively, what the efficient amount of spectrum to clear, but, you know, who would clear and how much they would get paid. In, 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 a, in an objective way, because, you know, it's a real problem, you know, for, um, you know, the government to decide how much we're going to pay you, you know, to, you know, to move involuntarily. But, you know, this was everything. One of the things that was key about this, that everything was voluntary. You know, you only moved if, if you were willing to move at the price um, offered. And so it actually made well, it took quite a while to develop it. It, it. it cut through the problem of eliciting cooperation from the sellers so that the spectrum was available, so that it was then it could be used by the public so that we can have more broadband mobile service. And I, you know, there's hardly anybody today who can imagine what it'd be like to go a day without their smartphone. And so that that's what this, is, is all about. I mean, yeah, you'd have your smartphone, but it wouldn't have enough spectrum to operate on. I mean, we're working on lots of other spectrum, but all these auctions together are making those services available to, you know, to the public who values them enormously. And, it, and as many people have emphasized, it's not, just, it, it, it's not just about the revenues. I mean, auctions have collected you know, about $100 billion in revenues. But, you know, some economists have, have estimated that the, the, the value to consumers, you know, the consumer surplus is, is 10 times that. So there, there, there's enormous value to, um, to the public. The, the, the revenues, it's a highly efficient way of, of collecting revenue 
um, for the government because it does it's non-distortionary economics lingo. I mean, you're taxing like a pure rent as opposed to like an income tax. It 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 um, avoids rent seeking like what we had with the lotteries or or the comparative hearings where you know a lot of resources are wasted. I mean, purely wasted in trying to you know get get something for free. So I mean, I think on all accounts. And 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 it tends to uh, award the licenses to the parties that value them the most, who are generally likely to provide the best services to the public, and and in the end, the public benefits because they get good good service from good providers. Okay, well, I'd like to close with a, with a little bit broader question, uh, with sure. broader implications, which which is simply this: Evan, you have had been involved firsthand in implementation of. Uh, FCC spectrum auctions for a long time. And I mean, based on that experience, what kind of conditions are, are necessary for economic research to affect practical policy? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I, I've, I've thought about it. And those conditions, it's just sort of like the stars have to align. But when they do, amazing things can happen. So the first point I would make is 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 about collaboration. You know, the ideas alone, you know, ideas of Milgram and Wilson or other, you know, auction theorists alone would not have changed changed the world without collaboration with the government and with industry, you know, the private sector. So, so I think that one lesson for for the government is, is to foster those collaborative relationships with, with the academic community. The government can never have, you know, the, the, the firepower of people like Milgram and Wilson um, in-house. The first auctions, you know, Milgram and Wilson were hired as consultants for, for some of the, um, one, the, the Bell companies, for PacBell or PacTel. And, and there, but there was collaboration with them for the um, broadcast incentive auction, um, Milgram and his team were hired as consultants. But, but, but without this close collaboration with people within the FCC, those, their ideas never would have, at least for spectrum auctions, would have amounted to anything. But the, but the FCC wouldn't have been able to, you know, we would have you know, been collecting bids in a cardboard box. I mean, so, I mean, we might have done a little better than that, but but the point is collaboration led to, you know, innovation in, 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 in a way that wouldn't be possible, but you also had to have industry support of it. It had to, it had to work for the, for the major stakeholders were, you know, who are bidding, you know, billions of dollars. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing I would say, the agency leadership must be willing to take risks. You know, innovation uh, in government is rare in part because it takes smart risk taking. And um, the FCC's decision in 1993 to go forward with um, an original untested auction design was, was, was a huge risk that um, Reed Hutt was willing to take. Maybe I already said this earlier in the interview. I think I did. But, um, you know, there was a lot of internal resistance to that. I think I said, you know, that, that my immediate boss, 
didn't want didn't want to be a beta test site. Um, but Reed Hunt and you know the people in the chairman's office, you know, asked the question. Just tell me what is what is what is the best economic way to do this, and then they tried to proceeded to figure out, you know, could we do this? But regardless, it, it, it was it was a major risk. And likewise, in 2012, um, with the broadcast incentive auction, it was a, it, it, it was a huge risk to do this. We're talking about doing something that had, I mean, just like the, the simultaneous multiple round auction, never been done before. You're not, you know, you the, the broadcast incentive auction, this is really high stakes. There has never been a two-sided spectrum auction anywhere in the world. And now we're going to do a thing that requires this highly complex repacking of all these TV stations that has to be done on the fly during the course of the auction. And, and to, you know, to, to support that and three chairmen, maybe four chairmen, you know, had to, you know, had, had to support, support it. But the big risk, you know, was the first chairman, you know, Jenikowski to, to start with it. But but then there were lots of decisions about Wheeler who followed. You know, there was a problem that, you know, to try to figure it out so it's, you know, it's really going to be pretty efficient, it takes time. And you've got to balance off the risk of, of failure if, if you push it too fast and the risk that, you know, it, it takes forever. Um, and, and, and delay is a cost. But I remember Wheeler being very concerned. This was, this was um, at the beginning of the Obama administration, and they had just rolled out the Affordable Care Act. And as you may remember, the exchanges bombed. It wasn't, you know, so it, it was a real black eye for the Obama administration because, you know, the, the, the software didn't work. Uh, you know, Wheeler said, I don't want to be to happen with our auctions. You know, I want this stuff. And, and, we, and we had multiple layers of testing and verification and so on. So it was, ta it was, it was smart risk taking. The third point I, I will make, which has three subpoints, I'm sorry, Jerry, but I'm on a roll now. It's not enough, you know, for the research staff to have a good idea. You can have all the great ideas in the world, but you've got to be able to sell it to the right people. And to and one thing that I've I've learned, you know, as, as being a longtime staff person, is is, is that you need a if if you want your ideas to make a major change, I'm not talking about something at the margins. I mean, like the the incentive auction was you know was a was a revolutionary approach. I mean, you know, to to spectrum management. I'm not saying you know it changed the whole world, but but in terms of you know economic and auction design, it was. You you need a, a, a patron, and what's a patron? Um, it's somebody that has a trust of the key decision maker, in this case, you know, the chairman, and trust the staff, you know, with, with, with their ideas. And it doesn't happen that often. So if, if you have a highly bureaucratic and hierarchical organization where these ideas are generated down in the hierarchy and they have to go through their boss and their boss's boss and their boss's boss and so on, it's really hard for anything creative to happen. You know, in I, I was very fortunate to be in, you know, the policy office, OPP and OSP, where at various times the head of the office had direct lines to the chairman, but not just formal lines, that the chairman really trusted them 
And, you know, you know, if I could convince Paul Dessau that this was a good idea, you know, there's a good chance that he could convince the chairman it was a good idea. And if the chairman was convinced, there's a good, you know, then, you know, the agency was, was going to go ahead and, 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 and try to do this. I mean, there were, there were other people, Ruth Milkman, you know, who, you know, who supported, I mean, we need to get money for this. I mean, there's a whole, I, I, don't, I don't want to give the impression, you know, that, that, that it's a, when I talked about collaboration, let me just emphasize, it's not only, you know, collaboration, you know, between like one or two academics and one or two people in the agency, there's a huge amount of collaboration that has to go on within the agency and, and, and with academics, it's not just one person. There, there's a, a lot of collaboration that, that, that goes on, but, you know, you need somebody that has a, you know, some vision and ideas can sell those ideas, but then is able to bring other people along and, and, and um, make it happen. Two last points on, on the, the general points, not enough to have a good idea. Timing matters. You can have the great idea, but if your timing's bad, you know, nothing happens with it. You have to have the idea at the right time in the right place. Um, and, and, you know, my best example of, of that is the, the example I already gave you with the broadcast incentive auction. I had been trying to sell the idea of a two-sided auction for years. And in fact, I even got the um, Michael Powell to, 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 to buy into it for um, um, using it for repurposing satellite um, spectrum. But in the end, there weren't enough votes in, you know, in the commission, partly because there was concern that it, that it wasn't legal. When the broadband task force was created um, in 2009, you know it was it was the right time. Um, you know the the head of that task force, Blair Levin, was looking to do this. He didn't, ha you know, he had a, a method that was you know command and control. You know, I I had a better mousetrap. I I, I had a patron, Paul Dessau, and the chairman was willing to take um, take the risk. But if it wasn't the right time, if there wasn't, you know, there you know, this moment, you know, when they were really looking for more spectrum and, and in particular repurposing the TV spectrum and the head of the task force wanted to do this, then the idea probably nothing would have happened. So timing matters. You know, the, the last point is, you know, it, it's, it seems a bit mundane. It's sort of true in life generally, but, um, you know, for a staff person, you need to be persistent, patient, and flexible. You know, I, th I think with these things, you, you got to be persistent in, in pursuing, you know, your goal. Like my overall goal always has been to using markets to manage spectrum more efficiently. But you have to be really flexible in how you achieve those goals. And if you get sort of stuck that it's got to be done just this way or just that way, and you don't listen to the objections of various people, you know, who, who are in a position to block it, and you just keep repeating yourself, you know, do it this way, you're going to get nowhere. And, you know, the patients, it can take a really long time until the right moment comes. Um, you know, for the first auctions, again, you know, speaking personally, but, you know, you're interviewing me. You know, I wrote this working paper with um, Lex Felker in 1985, you know, arguing for um, spectrum auctions. I mean, I wasn't the first person in FCC, you know, to argue for spectrum auctions. And, and as you mentioned, and we all know that COS 
was probably the first economist to propose it. And you also know that it was, you know, he attributes the idea to that, that um, law student, you know, uh, you know, several years. Yeah, Leo Herzl. Yeah, but the point, so I'm not claiming, you know, you know, to, to be the originator of the idea, but I will claim to have, have been persistent and, 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 you know, pursued it and advocated it. And it was, was nine years until the first auction in 1994. And, and when we got auction authority, you know, I knew more about auctions than anybody else in the agency. I mean, I was the one man, the one eyed man in the land of the blind. And, but I was in a, you know, a strong position to evaluate various proposals and to work with people, you know, the academics who had these different proposals and help them refine them, you know, so that it actually served our purposes. And the same, and, and for the incentive auction, I mean, I think it was, depends how you count it. I mean, if you, you want to make it look, the longest view is, you know, I did a paper with John Williams in 1992 about voluntary reallocation of spectrum. And then I did another paper in 2002 about two-sided auctions and, and you know, the um, broadcast incentive auction didn't conclude until 2017. So from the you know, first paper, you know, just arguing for basically using markets to determine how spectrum should be allocated because they, that, you know, that, that is the first, you have to remember that the early auctions are just saying who gets the spectrum, you know, how, how, who, who is assigned the, the spectrum, but how the spectrum is being used is determined administratively and how much spectrum is, you know, for different uses. I mean, flexibility addresses a lot of this, but when you're talking about moving spectrum from one use to another, you know, we've never done anything where you're using a market to determine how the spectrum is used. And, the, and our 1992 paper argued for reallocate, voluntary reallocation of spectrum between TV and cellular. And so, I mean, so, so it was 15 years until that idea was, was you know, fully implemented and, and um, the auction completed. You know, if, if somebody wants to, um, what, you know, I don't know your question of, about um, necessary to affect practical policy, you know, you could, you've got to have a um, play the long game. <laughs> yeah, it's clear from this example that patience and persistence were extremely important here, particularly uh, on your part, on your part. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up, but Dr. Correll, I'd like to thank you for your insights. And I'd also like to thank you for all the good you've done for the public through your work at the FCC all these years uh, with uh, patiently and persistently moving us toward uh, market-oriented allocation of spectrum. And to our listeners, I'd like to thank you also for downloading and listening.